welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. Last weekend, Quillette published an essay by Aaron Sibarium, a young assistant editor at the American Interest, on the conservative themes buried just beneath the surface of Avengers Endgame. I invited Jonah Goldberg, author of Suicide of the West and many other best-selling books, to join Aaron and me on the Quillette podcast to discuss Aaron's hypothesis. Shortly afterwards, Jonah tweeted, Just recorded one of the most intensely nerdy, eggheady podcasts ever. Thank you very much for doing this. Let's kick off. I thought I thought what we'd do is we'd first talk about The Dark Knight Rises, which uh, I think Ben Shapiro uh, described as possibly the greatest conservative movie ever made. And then I thought we'd move on to the MCU in particular, talk about Black Panther, and then get into the meat of the discussion, which is, is Avengers Endgame essentially a conservative film? Um, But let's begin with The Dark Knight Rises. Jonah, um, uh, would you have any argument with Ben Shapiro's description of it? Well, uh, I love The Dark Knight Rises. I think it's still unequivocally the best superhero movie ever made. Um, In part, I've long argued, which is a a subject for a whole other podcast, that uh, it is the most loyal to the moral precepts of the Marvel Universe rather than the DC Universe. And so it sort of stands apart from most of the DC dreck that they make. But I don't think it's the greatest conservative movie ever made. I think it's a. I think you can certainly make case it's a conservative movie. Um, I think uh, you know movies like The Lives of Others mm-hmm. is a profoundly conservative movie that also has um, a much greater power to sort of inspire people and to teach people about the dangers of totalitarianism. Uh, and look, I mean, I, 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 and we can get into the nitty gritty of this as we move on. I very much like this style of analysis where we try to find the conservative bits in popular culture and explain to people why they're appealing. But at the same time, it's going to be difficult to say, to convince people that they should be conservatives because of the messages of a Batman movie um, rather than the messages of other sort of more more morally serious um and, and weighty films, but uh, I got no problem saying it's one of the best uh, mass appeal sort of popcorn movies that happens to have conservative themes to it, you know, if that's the way you want to put it. But I don't think it's the greatest conservative movie ever made, in part because I don't think that was the intent, the intent of, of Nolan and the creators of the film was to make a conservative movie. It was to make a movie with some grand themes that, that treated its subject seriously and a lot of those themes are conservative. Yeah, so Aaron, what do you say to that? I mean, I think the the argument 
isn't that there isn't something conservative about the Batman trilogy, and in particular, The Dark Knight Rises, but the conservative content hasn't been explicitly placed there intentionally by the filmmakers. It just is something which is endemic to the genre. So the superhero genre, the comic book genre, just has these conservative features. So however you play with it, however you adapt it. It's always going to come off as seeming slightly conservative, but that doesn't mean it's conservative with a capital C in the way that Ben Shapiro is claiming. The Dark Knight Rises, I'm of two minds on this. On the one hand, I agree with Jonah that there's a danger in sort of reading too much into the director or author's intent, and I doubt that, you know, Christopher Nolan went into this thinking, oh, I'm going to make the most conservative movie ever. I will say that there are scenes in The Dark Knight Rises, particularly certain references to the French Revolution, you know, the thing where they storm Blackgate Prison, uh, you know, the sort of Blackgate Bastille parallel, that I remember when I watched it felt so on the nose. And, you know, Bain is like a, a communist or a Marxist that, you know, I don't know if the message was conservatism per se, but, you know, it it's not insane to sort of read a little bit of intended social commentary there, especially in the wake of the Occupy Wall Street stuff, which I think happened. When was when was? I think that was twenty eleven. So it was it was well, whilst right. Dark Rises was being made. I think. Yeah. So so I do think that there's probably a little bit of intentional conservative commentary. I don't think it's crazy to think that there was some. I take Jonah's point, though, that, you know, was this meant as a manifesto of conservative principles? Probably not. One of the films which um, which kind of plays with this tension between the inherently conservative themes of the superhero genre um, and the um, liberal sensibilities, for the most part, of the filmmakers is The Incredibles. You had this kind of conflict running through it, you know, uh, it, the, the, Mr. Incredible is a kind of, uh, he starts out as a Nietzschean Ubermensch and then kind of, uh, you know, gets fat. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the... I can sympathize. <laughs> it's almost as though society cannot cope with the implicitly Nietzschean subtext of the superhero genre. And that's what The Incredibles is about. What, what were you, what did, were you a, are you a fan of The Incredibles, Jonah? I, I love The Incredibles. I think there you have a and 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 I take the point about you know the Bastille stuff. I mean, Aaron's right about that. There were there were definitely homages to certain themes and all that that one could call conservative. I think The Incredibles was much more explicit about a lot of this. I mean, there's that famous line from Dash where Dash says, "If everybody's special, nobody is," which was a real shot across the bow of American self-esteem culture which you know, was done in the context where Dash was not allowed to be the best he could be because mm-hmm. it would make other people feel bad, other kids feel bad about themselves, which is you know, basically the subtext of Jonathan Haidt's godling of the American <laughs> mind. But um, I think you know, we need to back up for, for two seconds. You know, part of, you know, this is, this is something, been something of an obsession of mine for, for almost two decades now, I've written a bunch about it, that Hollywood desperately would love for woke left-wing themes 
to work in sort of mass appeal pop culture. And every now and then they can sneak one past the plate. You know, Avatar was hailed as proof that environmentalist movies work. Um, you know, left out of that was the fact that it was also a, basically a giant, you know, war movie on another planet with all sorts of new technology for the film. But particularly during the, the Bush years, Hollywood came out with one after another of really didactic, propagandistic, anti-military movies, and they all died at the box office. While movies that treated the military as heroes um, or as noble, you know, noble forces with individual agency um, did really, really well and have done really, really well since there have been movies. And that's not because necessarily the filmmakers want to be uh, pro-military or, you know, espouse sort of national you know benign nationalist views it's because that's what the audience wants the audience is inherently sort of small c conservative in this regard um they like to believe that we live in a good country they like to believe that the military that fights on their side are the good guys they like to believe in certain notions of conventional morality and one of the reasons why i think superhero movies in today's contemporary political context uh, have a conserv one of the reasons is that they have this sort of conservative frequency because they're inherently anti-identity politics. The superhero is an individual unto himself. He's not, even though he's you know part of a category called superheroes, he's still a hero, and the hero always has to be speaking for his own heroism and not simply as a representative of a class or a skin color or a gender. And the second Hollywood tries to force that kind of agitprop down people's throats the audiences catch on to it. And, you know, but the part of the problem of talking about these things as conservative versus liberal is that meaning changes over time. First of all, in the Anglo-American tradition, at least well, the American tradition, a conservative is somebody who is conserving the, the liberal tradition of the founding. And that has a different valence than it would in a sort of continental European context. And, you know, so the original, you know, the, the golden age superheroes that Frank Kirby and Stan Lee came out with, you know, Captain America and whatnot, those were like, these were liberal comic book writers who were writing superheroes that were defending the American way. The, the original Superman was defending the American way. And part of the problem now is that that seems inherently conservative in our contemporary political context. Because the hard left has no interest in defending the American way. And that's a shame, but it, it's, it, it, you get into a lexicological problem by saying this is conservative, when in fact what it is, it's, it's just sort of traditional American portrayal of drama and, and uh, heroism in, in an American context when the people in Hollywood would really dearly love to be able to shove more sort of you know hardcore left-wing stuff on audiences, just audiences don't want it, and Hollywood at the end of the day is a business that cares about profit. Yeah, even, even films hailed as iconic examples of Hollywood liberalism um, are now considered problematic, I think, by some members of the left. So, you know, the obvious example is To Kill a Mockingbird, um, you know, a great classic of American liberalism, um, but now slightly problematic because where does it sit with the obligation to believe survivors, to believe victims of sexual assault? Shouldn't that mean we side with um, the plaintiff in that court case and not with a defendant and Gregory Peck is actually on the wrong side. And what about um, Guess Who's Coming to... 
What? He's also a white savior, right? He's Which is a white savior. Oh, yeah. That's another one. And I guess, um, guess who's coming to dinner? Another example. Um, you know, the white couple um, are guilty of not being as colorblind as they purport to be. And yet now, um, purporting to be colorblind is in itself considered a form of racism. It's called colorblind racism. Um, and, uh, you know, according to the president of the American Sociological Association, that is a form of racism that's every bit as pernicious as explicit racism. But let's move on to Black Panther. Aaron, you, you come up with quite a, I thought, quite a controversial reading of Black <laughs> Panther in your article before moving on to Endgame. Yeah. As I say, it's a, about the, the hero, good guy, is hereditary monarch, a monoracial ethnostate. They have no immigration, high-tech border wall, traditional religious customs, uh, presumably above replacement fertility, although that's never made explicit. And the bad guy uh, is a foreigner who comes and wants to essentially take over the Wakandan state and use the technology, the vibranium they have, to launch this sort of pan-racial revolution um, using rhetoric that's really, I think, you know, somewhat redolent of the, you know, of today's left and sort of sort of more radical, um, you know, black liberationist left. And the message of the movie is that this pan-racial revolution, this is bad. And he shouldn't be doing this. Um, and the good guys, you know, the hereditary monarch have to stop him. And, you know, the, the pushback you get to that reading is, well, at the end, they open up Wakanda. But if you watch the movie, I mean, unless I'm missing a detail, I don't believe there's any indication really at the end that they open their borders. What they do is they export their technology and they export their aid. Um, which, you know, today I think some on the left would probably call that a kind of soft economic imperialism, um, you could argue. You know, so at the most you could say for it is it at the, you know, the beginning, it's maybe a more paleoconservative vision. And by the end, it's more of a kind of, you know, moderate neoconservatism where Wakanda uses its power and influence for good in the world. But it still remains a pretty homogenous closed society by all accounts uh it still remains a monarchy there's no indication that they get a democracy at any point yeah so so i mean i I have to say i i just i never understood how people could watch this movie and think oh the message is woke liberalism that just seemed the opposite in many ways of the message i'm not sure i share your interpretation that it it is effectively an endorsement of the principle of hereditary monarchy, though whether sure. as a conservative I'd want to claim that as a conservative <laughs> political creed, I'm not sure. sure. No. But there, there, it, the, the, the villain um, ascends to the throne legitimately because he beats the heir in a trial by combat, which seems to be a legitimate way of of acquiring power in Wakanda. Better than the Electoral College. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 he, and, and it seems to me there's almost an implicit critique of absolute monarchy because having ascended to the throne legitimately, he then takes advantage of the lack of constraints on his power as the ruler to then do these terrible things. You know, it's, it, it, what they need in Wakanda really is something like the Magna Carta. They need something to restrain yeah. the absolute yeah. monarch. Yeah, there, there certainly is a sort of more constitutionalist sort of, you know, old sort of British style conservatism. You could draw that interpretation. The one, so I, I think that's that's a good point. The one maybe pushback I'd say is that 
it's worth noting though that you know there's so there's this implication at the beginning of the movie that they see the, the monarchs you know it's hereditary and they see themselves as bound by this ancient duty and killmonger although yes he does gain power through a legitimate ritual and, and this sort of trial by combat he really has no deep connection to the culture or the values in the society and you could argue that it is precisely that lack of connection mediated again by this sort of superficial racialism that is why you know he's a bad monarch and why he you know is not suited for monarchy i, I think that you could say this system developed organically and is fitted to a particular kind of people with a particular set of mores. And of course, when someone comes in, you know, without those mores, this is an argument you hear from, you know, more kind of cultural conservatives about immigration. I don't always endorse where it goes, but you know, you do hear this argument like, well, if you have people come in who, who aren't, don't, aren't inculcated in the kind of traditions that the, that the system sort of grew up around, they're not going to interact very well with the system and it's going to cause problems. Jonah? I, I think Aaron's point about the, the the sort of Burkean critique of Killmonger is exactly right. What is required for healthy institutions is for people to be raised within those institutions and under and bend their individuality to a certain extent to the goods of, the good of the institutions. When you have interlopers come from outside the institution who obey the formalistic rules of the institution but for their own ends, uh, they they use those institutions in performative ways rather than in, in, in legitimate ways. And you can make that parallel with how Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are trying to, you know, take over, or in the particular case, Donald Trump took over the Republican Party for his own ends, rather than actually having been raised up within conservatism and republicanism. Bernie Sanders tried the same thing. But, you know, the, the Wakanda thing, first of all, the economics of Wakanda are utter garbage, right? <laughs> and we should we should stipulate that up front. But the interesting thing about it is that, to the extent the they get past the the uh, natural resources curse, uh, which allows you know places like Saudi Arabia to escape uh, the need for having democracy and liberalization and the rule of law, um, Wakanda is very much like Saudi Arabia. And one of the things Aaron left out about their newfound outward facing turn to the world was that they want to set up essentially what the same thing that the Saudis have been doing for the last 30 years, which is these Wakandan cultural centers all around the world <laughs> where they yeah. will spread their Wakandan propaganda. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad propaganda. Propaganda isn't necessarily pejorative. But the my, my larger point is that all of this stuff lends itself to just why it, it's a Rorschach test and you can impose different interpretations upon these things for, for fun and profit. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why this thing succeeds. Another way of interpreting this whole thing is, you know, it's funny, there were some conservatives who made a lot of, made fun of a lot of African Americans who got really into the Wakanda thing. And I was always like, well, you know, aren't you the guys who are like all into Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, which are also these, uh, essentially playing on white European mythology to create these alternative worlds with these deep backgrounds to them, why is this any different for for African Americans or descendants of the African diaspora to have a, a similar mythical kingdom that works work that works really well on its own terms and is really attractive and is bought into you know sort of notions of monarchy and and whatnot? Um, what's kind of funny to me when I was listening to Aaron describe the the monarchy of Wakanda. 
about you know a small ethno state. First of all, it's it's not ethnically homogeneous. Remember, there are like what five tribes. It's much more like the Hopsburgs, where they have all these different yeah, sure. peoples inside. But second of all, the way you were describing it sounded an awful lot like Doctor Doom, right? Who <laughs> was the head of this tiny little East European republic that fended off the Soviet Union and closed itself off to the world? And that used to be considered what the villains were, and now it's considered sort of this romantic ideal. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's true. Well, I, I think you're right that it is sort of a Rorschach test, and I but I also do think it, it maybe is telling that so many people were able to read a movie that I think we, we all agree clearly admits of certain conservative interpretations. Sure. But that despite that, people were across the press were just so, so homogenous, so, so united in saying this is the, you know, a woke progressive movie victory for all sorts of, you know, kind of progressive causes. Right. I think it just goes to show on the one hand that it is a Rorschach test. On the other, though, that the, the, the topography of left and right has somewhat shifted, right? You know, I sure. think that there are things that the left now, things they care about, right? You know, sort of, you know, you'd argue like hereditary monarchy in the service of racial representation, that's good now because, you know, of this more sort of identitarian focus. And I don't know if it would have hit quite as big in a different era, you know, say, like I, during the Cold War, this vision, you know, might have seen, seemed more sort of provincial and bad and negative. Um, but we don't live in that time anymore, and the, the concerns have shifted. And so I think it just, the, the fact that the movie did so well speaks to the sort of evolving political topography in this country. Just a quick sidebar on Harry Potter, which you referred to there, Jonah. I, I claim Harry, the Harry Potter books and the movies as essentially conservative, um, even though uh, their creator styles herself a socialist and has given money to the Labour Party. Um, and the reason I say that is um, because, you know, it, it, first of all, it completely fetishizes, sacralizes uh, the English public school. You know, even an American who sends their child to Groton or Exeter, I think, would be embarrassed by the slavish adoration displayed um, towards the great English public school tradition. The type of education that children receive, there's nothing progressive about it. It's essentially rote learning. It's highly competitive. It's not an all-must-win prizes atmosphere by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and then there's this kind of snobbery running through it, the appallingly snobbish depiction of the lower middle class Dursleys, uh, Harry's discovery that he is in fact um, uh, an illegitimate son of an aristocrat uh, in the kind of magical universe which makes him feel much more valuable than if he was just uh, a commoner. The um, uh, contempt uh, displayed towards muggles, um, uh, who, who are, after all, the plebs in the universe, not descended like the purebloods and even the halfbloods from the aristocracy. So running through it, like uh, through a stick of rock, is this kind of very conservative reverence for kind of uh, the British nobility and their kind of peculiar, twisted, perverted traditions, um, uh, which is, of course, why I love it. Um, but uh, anyway, let's move on to um, well, Avengers Endgame. Or do you want to dwell on Harry Potter? For a second. Really quick, chime in on Harry Potter. The <laughs> other thing, you, you just you, you have to note this in the fifth book, Dolores Umbridge. She doesn't want them to be exposed to risk. She talks about a secure, risk-free environment, like a safe space, right? And she happens to be the bad guy who's you know terrible and part of this you know 
Ministry of Magic educational bureaucracy that's destroying Hogwarts and imposing diktats from the top down, uh, destroying precisely this great, you know, uh, English public school tradition, right? I mean, that's that's a not so subtle, I think, critique of the kind of safe space, you know, special snowflake culture as well. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Um, so Avengers Endgame, do you want to just briefly set out your um, hypothesis, Aaron? Sure, that... sure. So um, I would say there's sort of three three main points. The first is that it's literally a film about restoration. The Avengers are trying to put the world back to where it was. Um, it's also a film that treats restoration as a worthwhile but not necessarily a quixotic uh, or utopian project. They succeed in partly putting things back, but they can't erase the past five years, right? You know, when they snap, when uh, Hulk snaps his fingers, it does restore, you know, it, the people who were obliterated in the snap come back, but, you know, the past five years still remain, the history still remains, um, some people die in the process. It, it's not, it's showing that it is possible to, restore things and restore an old order, but that it is not possible to do this without sacrifice and loss. And I think that that speaks to a kind of uh, conservative realism and hard-headedness about the nature of politics, anti-utopian. The second point is that the villain, I mean, this gets to, into stuff in Infinity War, but it, basically the villain is uh, an avowed anti-natalist, uh, uses sort of Malthusian rhetoric that was then taken up in the 60s and now is kind of being revived with this whole, you know, Green New Deal craze uh, that sort of his discourse talks about, you know, overpopulation as being a problem, both in that it depletes environmental resources, you know, and makes the quality of life for everyone worse. And then also kind of says, you notice if you read like people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez carefully, you know, what they say, they don't just say overpopulation bad because it makes climate change worse. They say, well, because climate change is going to happen and is you know, getting worse, children born into this world will have, you know, crappy lives. Uh, they'll be poorer, their air quality will be worse, et cetera. So is it even ethical to bring them into the world? There's this real strong, like anti-natalist suggestion you hear from certain corners of the left. And you also see that rhetoric, regardless of whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, it should be clear that the pro-abortion, pro-choice movement very clearly does recapitulate some of these rhetorical tropes, right? And saying, well, you know, isn't it really just sort of a kindness for us to, you know, abort the kid now and not have them grow up unloved and in poverty? The, the implication being that it would be better to not exist at all than to exist with, you know, on, under conditions of severe privation. And yeah, this is essentially Thanos's whole philosophy, his entire justification for wiping out half of all life in the universe. And he's the bad guy. Uh, so the sort of ethical conflict in the movie is essentially between this sort of weird Malthusian average utilitarianism and this more sort of deontological pro-life ethic. And then the final point, which is itself consists of three subheadings that we can get into, um, is that the time travel mechanics of the movie uh, are deeply conservative um, because, A, uh, they apply an anti-teleological concept of history uh, in other movies like 
you know, we can explain this in a minute, but in, in movies like Harry Potter and Terminator, there's this sort of time loop mechanic where something that happens in the future causes something in the past that itself causes a thing in the future. There's a sense in which the future event is this like preordained point towards which everything always had to progress. It's a kind of teleology. Endgame says that's all bullshit. It doesn't work that way. Um, so it rejects teleological history. Uh, it highlights the contingency of history because it has these sort of branching timelines where if you, you know, change something in the past, it just splits off into this totally different, you know, uh, reality where, that, where things go uh, very differently and potentially uh, much more poorly. That's why they have to return the Infinity Stones uh, at the end of the movie, because if they don't, it would be, I described in the article, it's akin to a kind of cosmic Chesterton Spence, where if you remove it, you don't know what you could be doing to that alternate universe that didn't have the stone. It could be really bad. And then the, the final point is sort of a meta point. It's just that, you know, these sort of abstract metaphysical questions about like time travel in movies sort of raises it the metaphysics actually matter. And instead of sort of trying to, you know, racket metaphysics and say that they're irrelevant or that they don't have any sort of ethical import, on the contrary, Endgame says, no, 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 you know, these metaphysical questions, you know, create huge, huge ethical stakes. And if the Avengers had not discovered the sort of metaphysical truth of how time travel works, they would have essentially sentenced all these alternative universes to you know, fates that may have been well worse than Thanos. So it's sort of a law of unintended consequences uh, running throughout it. So that's that's in brief my pitch. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, what do you make of that, Jonah? I mean, it seems to be essentially, um, the implication there is that uh, the creators of this film, uh, and indeed the MCU more generally, uh, may have read... Thomas Sowell's um, book contrasting the constrained vision with the unconstrained vision and seem to be coming very firmly down in favor of the constrained vision. What do you think? I loved the essay. Great fun. And there's a lot I agree. Philosophically, I agreed with a great deal of it. It does conjure to mind that line that we heard so much in 2016 about Donald Trump, about not taking him literally, but taking him seriously. And so on a literal level, um, while there's much I like and agree with philosophically with the interpretation of the, sort of the anti-teleological um, takeaways from the timeline stuff and the time travel stuff and the infinity stones, you know, uh, the, the, I, I wrote a book called Suicide of the Rest last, last year, which explicitly rejects all forms of teleology and begins with the phrase, uh, there is no God in this book. And so I, I like the anti-teleological part of it. But there is, to my mind, almost a pure zero chance that the creators of the film had these sort of philosophical impulses when they were doing their treatment of the timeline stuff and the the gemstone stuff rather than just trying to stay consistent with an overarching idea about how to make the mcu make sense after what is it 21 films and uh that said i think you know you bring up toby you bring up soul's conflict of visions which is a great book Look, I mean, I believe fundamentally that the essence of conservatism, particularly in the Anglo-American tradition, is recognition of the existence of human nature, that it is a permanent construct, it is a permanent edifice or landmark of existence, and it does not change. The central conservative insight is that human nature has no history. And so therefore, every generation, we have to maintain the institutions that we live in, 
and take into account human nature because human nature doesn't change. This is, this is the larger point of George Will's wonderful new book, The Conservative Sensibility. And this is one of the points about – this is one of my points about why literature and fiction in general mm. has a profound conservative orientation because at the essence of conservatism is A, realism and B, realism about human nature. And the essence of science fiction, fantasy, sci-fi, uh, you know, superhero books and all the rest is that you, the first thing you have to convince the, the reader or the viewer or the audience is that you're talking about human beings. They can be in fantastical places. They can have fantastic powers. But in their essence, they have the same emotional states, wants and desires and aspirations as you and me. And the essence of, of leftism, liberalism, whatever you want to call it, the unconstrained vision, as Sol would put it, the Rousseauian notion of the noble savage, is the perfectibility of man and that, that, that human nature is infinitely malleable and that it, we can create the right institutions and arrangements to change human nature to whatever we want it to be. And the reason why fiction, broadly understood, works is because we understand that that's not true. And that we have to connect on a level of understanding human nature in a certain way and the existence of good and evil and all of these various things. And that is a fundamentally conservative insight. And so the Thanos stuff, which the economics implicit in, in Thanos make the economics of Wakanda seem utterly reasonable. Right? <laughs> because we, we're talking about multiple there, I don't know how many galaxies there are, 10,000, 100,000 galaxies in our universe. The idea that the Malthusian logic of limited resources would apply in that context is insane. We have asteroids circling Earth right now that would satisfy all of our natural resource desires for thousands of years. Thanos could have split up all of these populations could have terraformed a million, million different planets and took half the populations and moved them over there instantaneously if he wanted to. But he didn't do that. Instead, he just wanted to kill half the people. Um, and that, I agree entirely, is a Malthusian, Paul Ehrlich kind of vision of things. It is profoundly stupid that the economics of scarcity should apply on a universal level. But And it, it kind of points to Sonny Bunch's argument that environmentalists make great villains because they want to muck with how you want to live and they want to be authority they want to impose you know restrictions on on your freedom for their own ends and so i think a lot of those things are great to pluck out of this but i i i, I very much doubt that one in 10,000 people who went to the movies and saw you know the final installment said oh so there really is this sort of sense of restorationist conservatism implicit in their timeline understanding or implicit in the infinity stones i mean again i like the interpretation i just think there are limits to the yeah, yeah. leaving the intent or the takeaway oh, from audiences th that raises an interesting question Jerry, and i think I, I completely agree with you about um how uh great literature and and great popular culture affirms soul's constrained vision because it uh, takes as a starting point that there is such a thing as human nature. We aren't born 
as blank slates. And often the drama is the internal conflict, which is implicit in our nature. Right. Um, it's like, remember Margaret Thatcher used to say, the facts of life are conservative. The facts of life are conservative. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, but but g- given, given that that's the case, uh, how is it that so many young people in particular come away from a film like Avengers Endgame. And, you know, as both of you have said, it's almost as though Thanos has watched an inconvenient truth in which Al Gore <laughs> says, we have about 10 years before planet Earth is turning to a frying pan, you know, uh, and then it'll be too late. Uh, and that was made in 2006. So, you know, it's almost as though he's seen that movie and he's having to act because if he doesn't, everything's going to be fried. And uh, even OAC, I think, I think she's put a 12-year timeline on how much longer right. we've got unless we embrace her Green New Deal. And it's like, well, g- given, given how idiotic um, these uh, ideologies are clearly portrayed as being in these movies, how do kids go to these movies, absorb the message, take on board what is this, you know, these essentially conservative themes, and then go and protest and join the Extinction Rebellion movement and talk about having to end capitalism as the only way to end poverty? What's going on? Why don't they? Why don't they? Why don't they learn more from this stuff? <laughs> Damn kids! Because <laughs> kids are stupid, you know, yeah. um, and because they're confused, and because they've imbibed this sort of secular, this sort of quasi-political religion about which has deep strains of of sort of uh, what do you call it? Uh, I can never remember if it's pre-millenarian or post-millenarian sort of doomsday logic, and they're fed it from a very early age, and talk to college kids all the time and to listen to them they think the environment has gotten i mean put global warming aside they think the environment itself has just gotten much much worse in every regard um over their lifetimes and while there are serious serious environmental problems plaguing us i think plastics in the ocean is a real problem and there are other things that are real problems as a general matter our air is cleaner our water is cleaner there are more trees in the united states than there were a hundred years ago i mean there's a lot of environmental progress but they're taught from a very early age to think that it's the end of the world and that they are the um, the cause of it. And and that's a hard message to overcome. And I, I, I bet you there are a lot of kids who are watching, you know, the Avengers think, nodding along with Thanos. That, yeah, really, it would be awesome if we could get rid of everybody, which is a comic. Remember, was it Moonraker? The villain in that was, wanted to destroy all life on planet Earth and then start over with these eugenic eugenically pure Mm -hmm. um, sex kittens that they're holding up in outer space. Aaron, we spoke a bit before this podcast, and uh, you said that one of the things that had prompted you to write this piece was uh, you and your friends go and see MCU movies, and, um, and, and you then see them described as woke, hailed as these great um, tributes to social justice by, by members of the audience. And you think, no, no, they're not. And you wanted to kind of kick back against that. But why do you think it is that so many people emerge from, you know, what is essentially Burkean manifestos uh, writ large in Technicolor, uh, come away thinking, um, believing in the unconstrained vision rather than the constrained vision? Why are people misreading these films? Here's one theory. I don't know if it's exhaustive, but here's one theory. I noticed in reply to my piece, a lot of people saying, yeah, but like there were so many women of color and, you know, <laughs> you know the men are, the men are, you know, kind of lazy, like Thor gets fat and then he ends up giving Asgard to a, you know, black woman. So doesn't that show it's not conservative? And I was thinking, well, no, because conservatism isn't 
intrinsically about race. And there can, in principle, be a pan-ethnic, very sort of racially welcoming uh, conservatism that, that, you know, is divorced from any kind of, you know, white supremacist revanchism. And I think that what you're seeing now is people don't people don't realize that people think that conservatism just is whiteness is prejudice etc and anything that's not white anything that's not prejudiced is somehow inherently woke or lefty or liberal and that's obviously ridiculous but it just speaks to the power of this sort of identitarian logic that i think is really hijacked the left and indeed i, I mean you know, people go back and forth in these liberalism and conservatism debates. And part of the challenge is that when I think we all use terms like conservatism or liberalism, what we have in mind is arguably not what this sort of emerging discourse has in mind, a discourse that's kind of propelled both by left identitarians, but also a certain brand of kind of alt-right edgelord that essentially agrees with all of the left's premises about race and gender, but just you know, draws radically different inferences from them. Um, and, and so I think part of the reason, Toby, that you don't see people coming away with this Burkean message is because we inhabit a political lexicon, a political discourse that just, it sort of lacks the the, the language to really articulate Burkean concepts because everything is just filtered through a sort of racialist, identitarian lens. I mean, that's kind of my theory. I don't know. What do you think of that? What do you think, Jonah? I, I think that's a huge part of the problem. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's not the only part of it, obviously, but, you know, I, I wrote a book 11 years ago, you know, there are parts of it I would write differently today called liberal fascism. And one of the things I used to point out is that the, you know, one of the things that defined Nazism was racial essentialism and uh, identi- a, a kind of identity politics. And that also defined groups like the Black Panthers, militant you know, anti-liberal, anti-democracy, racial essentialists. And one of the things that just drives me to the point of wanting to start cutting myself again is the way that young people today, if you describe racial essentialism in terms of sort of woke uh, parameters with, with minorities, you know, asserting their will to power and all the rest, it's awesome. And then you describe the alt-right, which is doing pretty much the exact same thing. They reject constitutionalism. They reject democracy. They want to get post-liberal and all of that. And they say, oh my gosh, that's evil. And what they don't seem to understand is that you're, I mean, you can say one group is more evil or more misguided than another, but they both have the the same indictment of sort of enlightenment-based principles and, and democracies. And they're taught this from a very early age, and it's very hard to get them out of that. And uh, one of the things I think Hollywood is brilliant at is is they use and – ma- and maybe this is why it will all be worked out and we can be optimistic about the future – is that they play on that with these these tells, sort of it's a sugarcoating. The reason why Wakanda works is because it taps into um, these identitarian sort of impulses, but then it drives those identitary impulses into better – understandings of how politics and international relations and human relations are supposed to work. And maybe that's the process by which we sort of assimilate. You know, we see this kind of thing in pop culture all the time. 
And that's one of the things that capitalism does that I think right and left don't fully appreciate both the good and the bad part is it takes radicalism and it bourgeoisifies it very, very quickly. And so you take what are essentially on paper sort of hardcore identitarian notions and you run it through the mill of a giant superhero movie and all of a sudden it doesn't make it radical anymore, but it also, it, it, it also takes the teeth out of it in a certain way. And I think that's maybe a good thing because it, it dilutes a lot of these things of their implicit danger and commodifies it. And and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. But it seems to be this pattern that you find over and over and over again. But it is a problem the way we teach kids is that their identity, their their membership in some abstract category is more meaningful than their individuality or the ideas that they actually believe in. And that's something that we're going to have to be fighting for a while. Do you think that that's consciously in the agenda of the makers of Black Panther. I mean, it does seem to do, as you say, it takes black radicalism, black nationalism, and transforms it into, you know, essentially a kind of moderate form of liberalism. Um, and uh, it's something that, something that um, it's taken maybe, you know, 50 years for us to do with um, the actual Black Panthers. It sort of happens in the space of, you know, two and a bit hours in the movie. But do you think that that was partly intentional? That did seem to be part of uh, what the filmmakers had in mind, what they thought they were doing in that movie. I, I think at the margins it probably is. Um, you know, Hollywood is always looking for things that have some radical frisson to them, some sort of edginess. And then they mainstream them. And this has been part of the shtick about appealing to young people forever. Columbia Records in 1968 had an ad campaign that said, the man can't bust our music. <laughs> you know, And they were like trying to, you know, this giant corporation was trying to um, tap into sort of youth radicalism. And you find this, I mean, this is one of my minor obsessions is I, part of the argument I made in my book is that we still live in a romantic era where we put the triumph of feelings over everything else. You watch SU, commercials for SUVs, these large you know, family cars, and one after another, they, they make it seem like you are a crazy maverick if you buy their SUV. And there's one episode, there's one commercial, I can't remember the brand, where this guy is going into witness protection and the, the feds are giving him his new identity. They're giving him, uh, you know, his new job, his his new house. Um, they're telling him where he's going to move, and then they slide across the table the keys to a perfectly conventional SUV. And this guy is like, "Nope, I can't do it. I got to be me. I'll take the risk of being assassinated, but I got to drive the new Lincoln Navigator or whatever it is." And one of the things I think the Frankfurt School kind of caught on. To a little bit about is the way corporate America takes radicalism and 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 gelds it, and I think it, it uses it as a way to sell soap. It, and I think that yeah. was part of what was going on in the Black Panther movie. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you should describe that as an essentially benign process that um, conservatives broadly speaking, should welcome. I mean, I, I know a lot of conservatives, uh, probably myself included, who are horrified by the spread of identitarian woke culture 
into the corporate sector. You know, for years, um, the uh, conservatism of the business world was a counterweight to the leftism of the academy and the media. But in the past eight or 10 years, um, that leftist culture, that grievance studies culture has seeped into the corporate world. uh, And they've leapt on it, they've completely embraced it, and they now pump it out uh, regularly. Um, And and, 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 and I I guess I was, I've been slightly concerned about that, but maybe you're right. Maybe we should welcome it because actually, if they take this kind of uh, grievance narrative and um, commodify it and use it to sell Gillette razors, um, then uh, that's actually a way of defanging it and and, and, and it ends up neutering it and means it's no longer a threat to the free market system. I want to be clear. I want to be clear. I don't necessarily welcome it. I just think it's a fact of, of sort of cultural politics going back a long way. And it, it's it's di- like Avengers movies. It's diversely interpretable and it has good sides and bad sides to it. But um, I would push back on one thing, which is that I, I'm one of these people I've been arguing so I'm blue in the face and maybe it's maybe it's different in the UK. This notion, which goes back to freaking the progressive era and Thomas Nast cartoons that big corporations are inherently right wing, you know, which has this deep debt, intellectual debt to Marxism. Mm-hmm. It's always been garbage in the United States. Big corporations have all, and we see this, you know, with Facebook and Google today. They play these games in cultural politics. They cozy up to government. They welcome regulation because it serves as a barrier to entry mm-hmm. to smaller, more innovative firms. It's nothing new. It's just that the language of today's culture with the identitarian stuff and all of the rest makes it seem more jarring. But they, they're off, they are utter pragmatists with a few exceptions, particularly the publicly held ones. When it comes to the cultural politics, they go where and in and, and, and times past, this has been a definite force for good. Big business and small businesses tended to be against things like Jim Crow. They tended to be against things like segregation because these were unfair. These were burdensome regulations on their ability to sell their goods and services. And that was a good thing. The problem is, and this is something that Schumpeter predicted, is that capitalism um, tends to be ultimately rationalizing about everything. And so it it's very good at destroying bad traditions and bad institutions, but it's also pretty good at destroying good institutions and good yeah. traditions. And that's a problem. But- yeah, and you know, I, I just would chime in. I, I think that that gets to uh, a kind of um, conservative critique of capitalism that you hear, and it's, it comes especially from this sort of more, not exclusively, but but largely from the sort of more post-liberal uh, crowd. You hear it especially strongly from them, which is, you know, that that because capitalism sort of says, you know, look. It's about cooperation, you know, the Hayekian argument is like we're all going to kind of cooperate. We don't all have to share the same ends. You know, the market just kind of synthesizes them all into this spontaneous order. And the problem is that precisely because capitalism is notionally neutral uh, vis-a-vis kind of competing preferences, competing conceptions of the good and just says, well, whichever, you know, provides the most uh, economic value, whichever one profits, the one that wins out. There is this longstanding worry among conservatives that, you know, the the emergent spontaneous order will be uh, deeply amoral, if not downright immoral, um, and that it, you know, will be a bit 
even dystopian. And so, you know, I, I do, I, I agree that there is a kind of, the, the counter argument is that there, there can be a sort of moderating, domesticating force uh, uh, capitalism exerts on these more, these more radical impulses that it sort of commoditizes. At the same time, you know, yeah, I, I tend to share the the concern about what's called woke capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Just to bring this, just to bring this full circle, Aaron, um, implicit despair about the inability of our postmodern universe to provide us with a substantial, thoroughly underpinned conception of the good. Isn't that despair actually? detectable, particularly in the ending of Endgame, when Captain America um, has to go back into the past in order to discover a kind of ordered, bourgeois, uh, virtuous life, which is the life he he lives um, with his sweetheart. And it's kind of, uh, he goes back into the 1940s, the 1950s, when, when, we, when we had fewer doubts about uh, our values and uh, the meaning of life. Uh, but, but in the present, uh, we somehow we're confronted with something much more barren and challenging and troubling. You have to, the only way he can, the only, the only conception of the good ultimately uh, Avengers Endgame has to to offer is this kind of nostalgic depiction of um, Middle America in the 1940s and 50s. No, I, I mean I, I think I think there's a lot to that, um, and I, you know other pieces of evidence for that would be that Tony, in the interim between the snap and the you know time heist, uh, ends up having a daughter and living a pretty sort of conservative mm-hmm. life in this cabin out um, in the woods. Uh, you know, and what's driving um, Hawkeye is precisely that he loses his family, mm-hmm. and that's really what he wants. I mean, there, there is this uh, nostalgia for a kind of, you know, bourgeois family life that indeed, you know, is sort of barren in our present. And you're right, at the end of Endgame, it's about going back in time, literally, to kind of recover that and, and live it out. The other thing that's worth noting, too, I think this also supports the interpretation is remember that scene it's before every all the portals open up it's when it's just you know uh thor iron man and captain america they're all fighting thanos right it's just the three of them versus thanos Mm -hmm. well someone i think left a comment on quillette's website which i thought was very insightful saying you know in a sense it's it's capitalism which is uh iron man um america captain america and then god Thor, he's like, he's <laughs> God. they all have to come together to defeat, you know, Thanos as a kind of, you know, stand in for communism. Right. And, and the, the, the crucial message there, right. None of them on their own could survive. Like if, if, if it weren't all three fighting, you know, any, any one of them, if they took on Thanos by themselves, would be instantly taken down, killed, but they are able to survive until, you know, for the reinforcements arrive. I think because it's not just, the sort of, you know, deracinated capitalism. It's capitalism betrayed by these other traditions of, you know, the sort of American Protestant project and God, you know, and a sort of, you know, a providential force all working together to keep evil at bay. So, yeah, no, I, I think you're precisely right about the, the undertones there. 
Okay, well, um, unless anyone has anything to add, I think that's uh, a good place to wrap. Um, so thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you very much, Jonah. I thought that was a very stimulating discussion. And, um, yeah, that was great. <laughs> it was fun. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's meet up again when uh, they reduce, produce the next uh, Avengers movie, which I'm sure they will yeah. in due course. <laughs> <laughs> if you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.